Now, uh, you may be wondering, right, when, um, when we come up here and we, we preach, where do we get our inspiration from? What's the, how do we get a topic of conversation, of, of the message that we're going to be sharing? Well, I want to tell you how I came to this morning's message. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Tracy, who leaves for work early in the morning, came into the bedroom, sat down, and said, I just want to let you know, um, Molly got skunked. Now, Molly is our seven-year-old uh, German shepherd. She's kind of a putz, but we love her anyway. And uh, she got skunked, and the house smelled like it. And um, so we decided that there's a skunk running around, and so I'm going to go get one of those have-a-heart traps. And I'm going to put it out in the... What are you guys already moaning about? <laughs> At least I got to have a heart trap, Right. So uh, we set it out back and, and waited for a couple of days to see what was going to wind up happening. And, um, and so actually, I think it was last Sunday morning, uh, I was here, the family was at home, and I get this picture on my phone. N- not a skunk, Jeff, yeah. So between Noah and Chloe, they were sending me a text. We don't know what this is. It looks, it kind of has a rat tail. I don't think it's a skunk. I'm like, no, that's a possum. And then the next text was, what do you think the next text was? Can we keep them? (laughs) Well, no, we can't, and they let them out. But so... This was kind of the, the, I guess, the inspiration, the genesis of talking about traps this morning. So uh, this morning we are going to talk about traps. It's something that we all face, and sometimes we recognize it, and way too often we don't. I want to start off this morning asking a question. How many times have you found yourself, like I, in a place, and we look around, and we say, how did we possibly get here? I've done what I think I'm supposed to. I've listened to God. I've focused and I thought what I thought was right. And yet, here I am. I'm in a pit. I'm stuck. I feel trapped. Well, this morning, that's exactly what we're going to talk about, about what the Bible has to say about traps. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, there's nothing that we can do other than to thank you for your goodness and for your mercy, for your kindness and for your love. And you saw, Lord, fit that we should rise this morning, that our feet should hit the floor, and you drew each one who is here this morning. And so we just want to start with thanksgiving to you. Now, Father, we're going to be speaking this morning about traps. We're going to be speaking this morning about the one who sets those traps, Satan. And we know that there is one thing that Satan hates worse than us sharing the gospel, and that is us exposing him for who he is and his tricks and his lies. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just send your angels to protect us, that from the four points of the property here, you would evict Satan by the blood and the authority of Jesus Christ. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and you would wash in and you would reign here in this place. Satan, you have no power or authority amongst us. We proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, and so you must flee in his holy and his righteous name. We ask that we have clean hearts this morning in a way to hear and see you, Lord, through the midst of this. 
that yes, there would even be an understanding of how we have sometimes fallen into those traps. Perhaps there are those of us who are in a trap right now. And I ask, Lord Jesus, you are the one who can break us free of those traps. You can set us free, and your heart's desire is that we would, in fact, be free. And so, Lord, may freedom come this very morning. We just give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a trap? Skip, can you put up that picture? Well, the dictionary defines a trap in this way. A device or enclosure designed to catch and retain animals, typically by allowing entry but not exit, or by catching a hold of a part of the body. It also says it's a situation in which people lie in wait to make a surprise attack. Also, an unpleasant situation from which it's hard to escape. The fourth definition is a trick by which someone is misled into acting contrary to their interests or their intentions. I want you to keep these definitions in mind as the message continues. Well, the question is, is what does a trap require? Skip, can you put up that picture? It requires bait. There we go. It requires an enticement, something that is desired by that which you are looking to catch. For animals, it's usually food. Why do you think that is? Because food is a base desire, and the desire for an easy meal lures that victim into the trap. Oh, what are some other base desires that we have? Skip, can you put up that picture? Now, I'm going to get real, right? This is companionship. Perhaps there's other base desires you were thinking about here, but Hunters will use what is a facsimile of the truth, a decoy to draw the prey into the target zone so that they can be easy pickings. Some hunters sometimes will use sprays that mimic the animals in heat, and some use animal calls. Skip, can you put up that picture? Well, we all know Phil Robertson, made famous by making duck calls. And what's a duck call? It's a siren call that draws prey to their death. So the first thing you need in order to trap is bait. What else is required in order for a trap to be effective? Well, it has to conceal its intended purposes. It has to trick its victim into believing that they are safe from harm. And Skip, can you put up the next picture? Well, sticking with the duck theme, this is a duck blind. It's a place for hunters to hide to conceal themselves and their intentions from their prey. No matter how good the bait, if the intended target doesn't feel safe from harm, it won't even come close. So a trap requires bait, something that the prey desires, and it requires concealment, a trick that makes them feel safe. As we start off this morning, we switch our focus from animals to people. Perhaps you're asking yourself, who's setting this trap? What's the bait and who's getting trapped and why? I think there's some obvious and perhaps not so obvious answers to that question. So let's see what the Bible has to say about traps. In Psalm 91.3, Skip, can you put it up? For he will deter, de- deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now a snare is just another term for a trap. question is, what's a fowler? Skip, can you put up that picture? 
Now, fowl are birds belonging to one of two biologic orders, the game fowl and the land fowl. Basically, it just means birds that you eat. Fowler is a trap or a net, or it's the person setting that trap in order to ensnare the birds so that they can consume them. Charles Spurgeon, Skip, you can put up his picture. Called the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon lived and preached in the middle of the 19th century in England. On a Sunday morning in March of 1857, Spurgeon shared a message on this very scripture. I want to share with you some of what he shared that day. Quote, if Moses wrote this psalm, he might represent the fowler as being, in his case, the king of Egypt who sought to slay him. If David penned it, he might have compared Saul to the fowler, for he himself says he was hunted like a partridge upon the mountain. But we believe if the verse be applicable to either of those cases, it was intended by the psalmist not to have a private interpretation, but to be applicable to all time, and we believe it is spoken concerning the arch enemies of the souls, the great deceiver Satan. He continues, the prince of the power of this world, the spirit which still worketh in the children of disobedience is like a fowler, always attempting to destroy us. It was once said by a talented writer that the old devil was dead and that there was a new devil now, by which he meant to say that the devil of old times was a rather different devil from the deceiver of these times. We believe that it's the same evil spirit, but there is a difference in his mode of attack. The devil of 500 years ago was a black and grimy thing, well portrayed in our old pictures of that evil spirit. He was a persecutor who cast men into the furnace and put them to death for serving Christ. The devil of this day is a well-spoken gentleman. He does not persecute. He rather attempts to persuade and to beguile. He is not now so much the furious Romanist so much as the insinuating unbeliever attempting to overturn our religion, while at the same time he pretends he would make it more rational and so more triumphant. He would only leak worldliness with religion, and so he would really make religion void under the cover of developing the great power of the gospel and bringing out secrets that our forefathers had never discovered. Whatever his tactics may be, his object is still the same, to catch men in his net. Satan is the fowler. He has been so and so still is. And if he does not now attack us as the roaring lion, roaring against us in persecution, he attacks us as the adder, creeping silently along the path, endeavoring to bite our heels with his poison fangs. And listen to this. And weaken the power of grace and ruin the life of godliness within us. Unquote. Spurgeon points out here that Satan, the great deceiver, is the one who sets traps for the believers. Isn't it interesting that he points out that the tactics of Satan have changed from the Middle Ages to his time, with Satan using less persecution and more deception of the believers to a faith that has no power and no victory. What we see today is a mix, I think, of the two. Clearly, we see the true gospel of Christ watered down in so many ways, health and wealth, hyper-grace, universalism, we also see an increase in persecution. Persecution of the true church, the one standing and boldly proclaiming that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The born-again children of God who stand up against the lies of this world are being charged as racist, misogynists, homophobic, sexist, and haters. 
And who is doing much of the persecution of the church? People, it's the church itself. Especially those who have been brought to the lie, bought into the lie of the cultural change that is sweeping this world. These cultural winds are blowing hard against historical biblical Christianity, and Satan is setting up the traps for the church to fall into. But let's take a deeper look at the trap. Would the trap be effective if it were not concealed? Would one run, run headlong into the trap if you were to see it in front of you? I think that we need to make a distinction here between the true Christian and the non-believer. The non-believer has no reason to avoid the trap. To them, it's not a trap at all. It's where they're supposed to be. You see, being caught in the trap is to be caught up in sin. All you have to do is open your eyes and you will see a world running headlong into the arms of sin. The trials and difficulties of this world are the result of the embrace of this sin. Racism, poverty, wars, strife, murder, rape. All of it's the result of being entrapped in sin. And the world who embraces their sin is the very world that tells us as Christians that we are the ones who are responsible for causing sin by perpetuating hate and intolerance. All too often, the church responds to this call by accepting that responsibility. The results is a watered-down gospel that focuses on social justice, expect, accepting the lie of the LGBTQ agenda. How does this happen? How does this happen to the church? Well, I want to turn back to Spurgeon for 150-year-old wisdom. He says, quote, If the devil comes to my door with his horns visible... I will never let him in. But if he comes with his hat on as a respectable gentleman, he is at once admitted. The metaphor may be very quaint, but it's quite true. Many a man has taken in an evil thing because it has been varnished and glossed over and not apparently an evil. And he has, had, and he has thought in his heart, there is not much harm in it. So he has let in this little thing and it has been like breaking forth of water. The first drop has brought after it a torrent. The beginning has been but the beginning of a fearful end, unquote. What Spurgeon is sharing with us is such an obvious truth, and yet we so often don't recognize it. Think about it. If Satan were truly to make himself known to you, would you really follow him? Would you run headlong into sin and depravity? Obviously, the answer is no. But that's not how Satan works. We have to remember he is cunning, And guess what? He's smarter than you are. He has much more experience than you do, and he even knows more scripture than you ever will. And how he works is by subtly introducing lies into the truth. I want to look at one of the examples of how Satan does this. Skip, can you put up the scripture? Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the serpent was more crafty. What does crafty mean? You think it meant that he was good at needlepoint or 
Scrapbooking? No, crafty meant that he's clever at achieving his goal by deceitful means. Satan here says something that gives us a great understanding of who he is and how he works. He said, did God really say? What's interesting here is that we have no indication that Adam or Eve had started this conversation with a certain, by telling him what God had said. Satan already knew what God had told them. Satan starts off this conversation with information he had already had about the conversation that God had with Adam. That's when God gave that command to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't even formed yet. So Satan goes to evil and he starts by asking her a question. And this question was purposeful. It was so that he would place doubt in the mind of Eve and Adam as to whether God truly said what he said, if they truly understood what God had told them. What he was trying to do was to draw Eve and Adam into doubt about their faith and trustworthiness of God's word. What happens next is remarkable. Eve actually faithfully recites the command that God had given. In fact, she went further than the command that God had given to Adam in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Her response almost reminds me of a child who would exaggerate something that their parents would tell them. She said, you can't even touch the tree. But Satan had Eve and Adam exactly where he wanted them. Satan says, you will surely not die. What he's really saying to them is that God is a liar. He can't be trusted. And Satan gives them the reason why God wants to keep them from eating the fruit. Because if they did, what would happen? They would be like God. How would they be like God? They'd have knowledge. Satan is a liar. He is crafty. What we see here is that Satan uses our desire to be in the know against us. We feel like we have the right to know. It's why we get caught up in gossip, asking questions and inserting ourselves into the affairs of others just so that we can know what is happening in others' lives. What ultimately this leads to is scorn. Maybe it's pity or self-righteousness on the part of the gossiper. It also really leads to questioning whether God can be trusted by what he tells us in his word. Well, I need to know this. I need to have the understanding in order for it to be true. How arrogant can we be? An example is they tell us that the earth is billions of years old. Who's they? And why should I believe them if it's contrary to the, to the word of God? And yet people in the church, even pastors in this country, are trying to make the Bible fit into the contemporary understanding of these so-called scientists. They're people that they don't know, and they're talking about things that these pastors and we don't have full understanding of. And yet, we believe a guy in a white coat rather than the king of the universe. Look how Satan, in a relatively short period of time, has gotten the church to cave on the truth of creation. How did Satan do it? By traps. The bait of knowledge and the concealment of partial truths. Many have been trapped into sin without even recognizing its sin. But I want to move on to two other quick uh, traps here. Skip, can you put up 1 Timothy 6, 9? 
But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Skip, can you put up that picture? I think this says it better than anything. I have spent quite some time from this pulpit sharing with you about the dangers of money. I do not wish to rehash old ground or belabor a point. But when Jesus says in Mark 10, 25, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, we have to take him seriously. But in regards to today's message, we have to be aware that Satan will try to trap us with doubt and with fear. He will try to conceal the truth that God is the owner of everything. As I've said to you in my last message, all that stuff that you hold dear, it ain't yours. It's his. And one day it will burn. And yet we spend an awful lot of our time trying to get it, worried about losing it and scheming to keep it and get more and more of it. And all the while, how effective are you in the real work that you are called to as followers of Christ? How much effort do you put into your faith as compared to how much effort you put into making, keeping, growing, or saving your money? And speaking about sharing, when given the opportunity to share the resources that God has given to you, whether it's to the church or to someone that the Lord has placed before you, do you first think about yourself? Do you do a calculation to ensure that you have enough money for what you want to do? Is your giving out of your excess Or do you give to the stranger out of the deep desire to share what God has blessed you with? Skip, can you put up the picture? As many of you know, I've had the privilege of going to India twice. I want you to hear my heart on this. No matter how bad you think your situation is, it's nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing daily in India. This was two years ago. This church, as it turns out, I think it was eight months after we left, was bulldozed. What they face is real persecution, real pain. We have the privilege here at Bethlehem Community Church of having some brothers from the Capital City Rescue Mission. I want you to hear me on this. Please know that these brothers who are living at the mission have a much better life than those that are living in India. They have clean running water, beds to sleep on, and three nutritious meals a day. They have access to clean clothes, medical care, and education to improve their station in life. I want you to know that the situation in India for our brothers and sisters is intractable. It's not changing. Hope is not found for our brothers and sisters getting more money and having a better life. And therefore, an amazing thing happens. They're not distracted by the trappings of money that we are. There's an amazing result of this, and that is that they have more joy than we do. And something even more remarkable than that is they're so much more generous than we are. Do you hear that? Out of their poverty, they're the most generous people I've ever met. The best illustration that I can share with you on this is the experience going to the villages, excuse me, to preach and to pray with them. That first year that we went, we went to a number of villages. One right after we landed, we were taken to a church to pray over. We'd helped to build that church. 
The following day, we went to a village of one of the pastors from the conference that we were teaching at. We were preaching and praying with them for hours, and then they brought out all this food, fruit, rice, chicken, and things I couldn't possibly tell you what they were. Some of the things we were able to eat, others we were cautioned to stay away from, because likely we'd get sick from it, as we aren't immune to much of mostly the waterborne illnesses. The next day, we were sitting having our delicious lunch of some chicken dish, and Frank just loved that. Not. I did, though. It was awesome. I asked Pastor Samuel as we were sitting there whether what we were eating was the typical meal for the pastors and for the villagers, how often they were able to eat chicken. He said that most of the pastors and the villagers ate rice and this homemade yogurt for their two meals a day. They had chicken, really their only source of meat, maybe twice a month. I asked him about the meal that we had had with the church that prior evening. And he told us that they had fed us their chicken for the month. These brothers and sisters took food out of their own children's mouths to feed us. I started to cry at this revelation. Out of their poverty, they were generous to their own detriment. How could they do this? How could this be? Skip put up the picture. This is how. Because their faith isn't compromised by their possessions. They can and do praise God in spite of their circumstances, maybe even because of them. We would do well to not get caught into the trap of possessions and money. Now, the last trap I want to speak to you about today is actually a trap that Satan doesn't even have to set for us, for we set it for ourselves. Yes, I'm saying that we ensnarl ourselves in all sorts of nonsense, And blaming Satan or somebody else instead of taking responsibility is only giving yourself permission to be trapped in sin. I want to make this point by talking about myself for a moment. Several months ago, I was diagnosed with celiac. Actually, it was 10 years ago, but I just found out a couple months ago that I have celiac. It's an allergy to gluten. Truth is, it's not the worst thing in the world but it did a lot to explain how I've been feeling over the last several years. When I was diagnosed, I was extremely careful about what I ate as I was unsure what foods had gluten and which did not. As a result, I wound up eating especially clean meat, fruits, salad. That was about it. Most gluten is found in high-carb items, so I stayed away from them. Being that the gluten-free version of most foods are twice as expensive and about a quarter of the taste, I stayed away from all those things too. I was feeling really good. I lost weight. I wasn't bloated and I wasn't uncomfortable. And things were going well. And then I set a trap for myself. I have no one else to blame. My trap is rather simple. I'm not eating gluten. I'm feeling good. Therefore, the issue is gluten. I can eat whatever doesn't have gluten, and I'll be all good. Do you know what doesn't have gluten? I want to give you just a short list of some of my favorites. Marshmallows. (laughs) Snickers. 
M&M's, Tootsie Rolls, Swedish Fish. Getting my point? My issue isn't gluten. It's self-control. I could blame Satan. I could blame my wife. I could blame this fallen and broken world. I could blame my parents. And I tried blaming you guys. That didn't work. But it wouldn't be the truth. I sabotage myself. I lie to myself to give myself permission to not have to sacrifice that which I want. If I can't have cake, darn it, I'm going to have some chocolate. So I want to go back and go to the challenge here. So I'll go back to Psalm 91. Skip, put it back up. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Please understand that this is a promise of God. In this statement is the deliverance from the trap. God is a God of deliverance. Sometimes he will deliver you before you get caught in the trap. Obviously, this is what we all want. How does that happen? We come to our senses. We find ourselves on the precipice of sin. We have stared into the abyss, and we found it calling out to us with a siren song, much like the duck call enticing us to come. The water is comfortable, and it's safe. Come join the flock in here. And all of a sudden, you're yanked back from the edge by the Holy Spirit or by a faithful friend who reminds you who and whose you are. And you see the abyss for what it is, and you turn and you walk on the paths of righteousness. Sometimes you suffer for your foolishness as you take a big old bite of the apple, Seeking knowledge over truth, possessions over generosity, or selfish gain over humility. Sometimes God allows us to feel the pain of our choice. Love requires a choice. And we choose to love him with our obedience, our trust, and our faith. Or we suffer for the cause of maturing. In either case, God promises to rescue those who call upon his name. As our friend Spurgeon said on closing his sermon on this topic, quote, our text is a very comforting one to all believers when they are beset by temptation. Surely he shall deliver them from the snare of the fowler. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who rescues. You are a God who delivers from the snare of the fowler We know, Father, that Satan is that fowler looking to set traps uh, for us to the left and to the right. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would make each one's paths here straight. And, Father, we would have wisdom and discernment. Father, that where we would find our understanding would be in your word and not in the world. All too often, Father, we find ourselves drawn into the belief that what you say isn't true, that you aren't who you say you are. Lord, in those times, I ask that you would just have freedom to pull us back from the precipice. Father, I ask that you would send a faithful brother or sister to grab a hold of the back of our necks and pull us back. We give permission to our brothers and sisters to speak that into our lives Father, one of Satan's greatest weapons is when he separates us and we are alone. And so, Father, I thank you that you draw us in to the fellowship of believers. 
Lord, I thank you for each one who is here. I ask that what was shared this morning, Father, would just find resonant in soft hearts. That perhaps even revelation, Lord, came to somebody who this morning finds themselves in a trap, that they may call out to you and know that you will rescue them. And we just give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Jeff Eckstein, one of the pastors here at Bethlehem Community Church. Welcome to our Sunday podcast, coming to you from the town of Bethlehem in upstate New York in the USA. Bethlehem Community Church is an independent, non-denominational, Bible-based evangelical church that includes people with backgrounds from many denominations. We believe that it is only through the love of the Father, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can come into a personal relationship with God. We are people truly seeking a deeper intimacy with God and with one another. If you'd like to know more about our church, please visit our website at www.bccdelmar.org. There you'll be able to find our statement of faith, as well as more about the ministry of Bethlehem Community Church. You'll also be able to submit prayer requests as we are called to pray with and for you. We also would love to hear your story and how you found our podcast and where you're listening from. So please visit our website and send us an email. Again, it's bccdelmar.org. That's bccdelmar.org. Thank you for joining us as we continue our pursuit of knowing God and making him known.